Welcome to the eighth episode of the Neural Compass Podcast. My name is Steven Sinegrope, and for any new listeners, I'm a neuroscience major at the University of Chicago, and everything I say is for educational and entertainment purposes and not medical advice. Today's episode has plagued me for a while because it's such a difficult topic to research as well as explain, but it's also one that's highly philosophical and requested, and that is in the area of consciousness and awareness. To begin, what is consciousness or awareness? The first inklings for an understanding of conscious awareness arose in the 17th century when René Descartes proposed a mind-body theory of dualism, which presupposes that the mind and body are separate entities, the brain a part of the body separate to the mind. Descartes posited that humans were the only living things with the component of mind, and that serves as a separation from all other animals whom he saw as functioning analogously to organic machines. Karl Marx and other notable philosophers rejected Descartes' theory, stating that the mind was contingent upon materials of the environment, and therefore could not be a wholly separate entity, as in, without the brain, there can be no mind. So where are we now? It's a few centuries later, but there's still an ongoing debate. Scientists like Daniel Dennett from Tufts University, professor of philosophy and cognitive science, and a staunch atheist, profess that all aspects of the mind can be understood logically and evolutionarily. So what does Dennett say about consciousness? Well, he draws the line between human consciousness and animal, or even bacteria, at language. He says language is what enables us to reflect on thoughts and experience, and likens language to birdsong as an analogy for the comparison between human to animal consciousness. Birdsong communicates very little. So Dennett sees consciousness as wholly material, possibly a side effect of the evolutionary answer to ever-increasing complexity and degrees of freedom, and a phenomena entirely replicable and reproducible by artificial intelligence. Another theory of consciousness in the modern view comes from Gerald Edelman, a 1972 Nobel Prize-winning biologist who, in contrast to Dennett, dismisses computational theories of consciousness describing the mind and consciousness as purely biological phenomena arising from cellular processes in a manner which follows Darwinian principles, in a manner coined by Edelman as neural Darwinism, which is founded upon the three tenets of developmental selection, experiential selection, and re-entry. Developmental and experiential selection describe how well the gross anatomy of the brain is controlled by genetic factors the connectivity between neurons, the functional units of the brain, is determined somatically, or by the body, during growth and development. And changes in connectivity in individual neurons continues to occur throughout life of each individual. Which Edelman suggests is analogous to the selection of populations of individuals within a species. The third tenet, reentry, is a bit more complicated describing recurrent and recursive connectivity between different neural networks or ensembles of functional units, something akin to different neural networks able to signal between one another forming complex and recursive communication loops. And the addition of these interactions between different populations of neurons gives rise to a insanely complex system able to maintain differentiated unitary states. Reentrance circuitry is very difficult to grasp, but distilled down, it's the ability for a circuit to change its own fundamental properties to exist in different modes or states, such as brain states that could be related to consciousness, or different levels thereof. 
These hypotheses presented are just two popular ones of many. A common question you'll hear regarding consciousness is whether there's a specific region or part of the brain where consciousness could reside. And the answer to that question is a little bit difficult because it's difficult and near impossible to determine whether a certain region is creating consciousness or just acting as a switch, turning on or off, at least with current research tools. Published at ScienceDaily.com, researchers at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center analyzed 36 patients with brainstem lesions, looked at which lesions resulted in coma. Finding a small area involved in 10 of 12 of the coma patients, this region known as the rostral dorsolateral pontine tegmentum, the name of which isn't very important to know. Then, this region's connectivity was analyzed using Harvard Medical Center's Human Brain Connectome Data, which is a project that began in 2005 using electron microscopy in order to create three-dimensional mapping of the trillions of synapses in the human brain. Using this unfinished but massive data set, a few cortical regions were found with connection to the brain region analyzed. And these are the left ventral anterior insula and the pregenual anterior cingulate cortex. Again, names are less important, but both areas have been previously implicated in arousal and awareness. But the relationship to consciousness is still wholly unknown. I'd like to now move from broader philosophical questions to more practical expressions of consciousness and awareness. But just very briefly, I'd want to first describe the value for studying consciousness besides simply scratching an ever-present existential itch. There are a variety of disorders and conditions where conscious awareness is affected. One example being visual form agnosia, where individuals cannot consciously perceive shape or orientation of objects, but are able to act as though they can, avoiding obstacles and pointing to positioning their hands correctly in order to grasp. Conscious experience is also important to neuropsychiatric disorders. A more clear understanding of hallucinations, for instance, would enable more direct treatment of psychosis, rather than the current method, which is just symptom management. In an article published in Nature in 2019, researcher Emily Sohn shares that every year, tens of thousands of people in the United States become conscious while under general anesthesia, unable to move or speak, but likely able to hear noises and feel pain. A method of measuring or gauging conscious awareness would be immediately applicable in such clinical cases as these unresponsive patients. Moving to a more individual aspect of consciousness, I'd like to speak a little bit about self-image and body image, specifically through anorexia nervosa and body dysmorphia disorder. Both disorders are characterized by a grossly distorted perception of one's appearance of body image. In 2020, a publication in Brain Imaging and Behavior, authored by Tina Moody, determined through fMRI analysis, functional magnetic resonance imaging, of 64 unmedicated females, 20 suffering with anorexia nervosa and 23 body dysmorphic disorder, found that between the disorders there was a common level of hyperconnectivity, so more connection, in the dorsal visual network. I like to remember the dorsal as the back fin or the dolphin or shark as an anatomical directional term. And they found hypoconnectivity, which is fewer connections, in the parietal networks. Some body dysmorphia disorder patients also showed hypoconnectivity in the dorsal visual network, 
and there were profound differences between the disorder in both activity and or connectivity of such networks based upon severity of illness. So more studies needed. Um, and just for reference, the parietal cortex is located above the temporal lobes. So if you take your hand and trace up your skull from your ears, that's about where you'll find it. And it's an interesting brain area because it receives a multitude of sensory input and has been historically related to spatial perception. But careful study recently has also implicated this region in self-perception and specifically body image, which appears to be corroborated by the 2020 data I shared. A 2005 publication in the Public Library of Science Biology, or PLOS Biology, outlined a study conducted whereby using vibration over a tendon extensor muscle, vivid sensations were created of extension. To better visualize this, if you hold out an arm in front of you, palm down, and bring your knuckles closer to your face by moving your wrist, that is the work of the wrist extensor muscle. So by vibrating the tendon that innervates a muscle such as the wrist extensor muscle, researchers are able to induce a feeling that the muscle is flexing even when it isn't. And triggering this while a subject is holding a part of their body such as their waist can create the sensation that that part of the body on the subject is growing or shrinking in what is called the Pinocchio effect. fMRI imaging of the brain while subjects experienced this effect showed lighting up of the parietal cortex or increased activity. Beyond the brain regions or circuitry involved, this research exemplifies the fact that one's perception of their body or body image is dynamic and can be distinctly divorced from reality. And recognition of this fact could give some solace to different people struggling with negative conceptions about their body. But it also solidifies the fact that body image perception is a normal neurological process and that distortions can occur in perception in the absence of diagnosable disorder. This idea explains how some people can hear any number of individuals telling them how appealing they are and still hold reservations about their appearance. It's not attention-seeking or immature. And the fact that that perception is so prevalent is indicative of a deep-seated stigma. Globally, there needs to be an understanding of aforementioned neuroscience because according to the South Carolina, Carolina because according to the South Carolina Department for Mental Health, an estimated 8 million Americans have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, and the mortality rate for anorexia nervosa specifically is the highest of any mental disorder, and 12 times higher than all causes of death for females 15 to 24 years old. Societally, we've come a long way in terms of destigmatizing mental illness, but it's not enough. Children, and especially young women, need to see examples of a variety of healthy bodies in fashion and television, understand how to make nutritious eating choices not based on a body image, and not have to bear the weight of their bodies being constantly objectified and analyzed. I hope with that I've made a case for the value of psychological and neuroscientific understanding in anyone, not just aspiring doctors or nurses. And I hope that we continue as a society to seek understanding of each other before we start to belittle or condemn. And with that, we're nearing the end of the episode. So as is now tradition, I'd like to close with a poem. This one by Emily Dickinson, entitled The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. The brain is wider than the sky. For, put them side by side, the one the other will contain. With ease and you beside the brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb. 
as sponges, buckets, do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. This poem to me communicates the recreation of the real through the sieve of consciousness and the profound existence of self. The self and the other in this poem are intertwined, the sky contained within the brain, the weight of God or the heft of consciousness itself. The piece missing from this poem is what happens when the brain interacts with another, but that discussion is for another time. And that's the end of the eighth episode of the Neural Compass podcast. I hope you enjoyed. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram at Neural Compass Podcast, on Twitter at Neural underscore Compass, and at NeuralCompass.org. I hope everyone had a happy 4th of July.